Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Yunfan Jerry Zhang. Yunfan is a PhD student in the Department of Astrophysics at the University of California at Berkeley and is also affiliated with the SETI Research Center uh, at Berkeley. Uh, Jerry, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. You spend your days searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. Let's just start right there. Tell us about the, the that effort at Berkeley and how you got involved in applying machine learning to that search. Right, absolutely. Uh, so SETI, uh, which is short for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is about the question, are we alone in the universe? Uh, so the Search for Extraterrestrial Life comes in many uh, different forms. Uh, many, many searches involve searching for uh, simpler life by looking at the biosignatures uh, or by going inside of our solar system uh, doing in situ sampling uh, in the soils on Mars, for example, SETI is uh, takes a slightly different approach. So SETI is the main the main idea behind SETI is that um, um, a lot of technological signature uh, or radio emissions, whether intentional or non intentional, could potentially be detected from very very far away. Uh, therefore, uh, if there are advanced civilizations uh, within our galaxy, we could hope to detect their Techno signatures uh, with our existing telescopes. Uh, so these ideas have been proposed since the 1950s, and uh, uh, since then we have greatly increased the computational as well as uh, uh, the analog capabilities. Uh, and uh, in 2015, um, the uh, Breakthrough Initiatives was funded uh, by Yuri Milner. Uh, the Breakthrough Listen project, in particular, is a 100 million dollar project to conduct the most comprehensive SETI uh, to date. And uh, the main headquarter is here in Berkeley at the Breakthrough SETI Research Center, where we analyze the data that we collected from uh, uh, currently two main telescopes, uh, the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, the Parkes Telescope in Australia, and most recently announced uh, the Meerkat uh, telescope array in South Africa, which is a precursor to the square kilometer array. Oh, interesting. Uh, now, I remember back in the early 2000s, I guess, there was a SETI at home project, which basically kind of distributed the, there was this client you can download and it would, the SETI at home project would kind of parcel out these mathematical equations, basically analysis of some set of, of these, uh, this signal to, you know, the, I don't know, millions of people who downloaded this SETI at home. I think it was a screensaver or something like that. Right, right. Absolutely. Does that thing still exist? Is that yes. run out of? Uh... Yeah, SETI at home uh, is still operating, also based out of Berkeley. Okay. So uh, SETI at home was actually one of the earlier deployments of uh, uh, d distributed d d d decentralized computing. Um, and uh, it employs uh, a set of match filters that people use uh, to, that people have engineered uh, of signals that could potentially be interesting, potentially be uh, sources of uh, uh, ETI. And uh, 
Um, that effort is still going on today. Interesting, but your focus is on the application of machine learning to this. How did you, you know, what sparked your interest in this area? Absolutely. So, uh, so in uh, as machine learning applied to SETI, uh, for example, uh, SETI at home, uh, as we just discussed, uh, employs a set of match filters, and Breakthrough Listen also uh, mainly revolves searching for particular types of signals, which we can go into. A little more detail in a bit. Uh, the idea is that uh, using machine learning, we can uh, uh, potentially find signals where uh, we don't exactly know uh, the type of signal that we're looking for. Uh, so that's that's one of the main reasons that uh, uh, a more flexible and versatile technique like modern machine learning uh, could potentially help. Uh, for me personally. Uh, my background was actually originally in particle physics. Um, so the, the, my career track is sort of, um, um, I, I started very young being interested in big ideas, uh, ideas that, uh, that based on a set of principles, uh, you know, uh, mathematics, uh, we're able to derive highly non-trivial understandings of the universe. And, and uh, um, really shape the course of human history. So that really got me interested in the success stories of 20th century physics. Uh, during my time at Berkeley, uh, I started to uh, uh, realize that uh, in the 21st century, data has become a new tool uh, to solve these very complex problems uh, more effectively and efficiently. And uh, uh, that's how I got myself uh, involved in machine learning and data science um, and uh, I started by, I, I, I took some classes at Berkeley on uh, uh, seminars of deep learning, uh, where we looked at uh, most recent, some recent papers, and we have invited talks from researchers at Microsoft and Amazon, and uh, we design our own research projects. And that's, that's, that started my, uh, my, my interest and passion for modern deep learning. And uh, within my department, the uh, one of the groups that uh, was uh, in need the most of these techniques was Breakthrough Listen, uh, the SETI project. And that's how I started my involvement. Okay. And within the department, just out of curiosity, is deep learning, is it a you know a, a still a rare skill or is it becoming a... To what degree is it becoming a standard piece of the uh, astrophysics toolkit? Right, right. Um, to, to, to my understanding, uh, I, I would say the uh, it's. I would not call deep learning a standard toolkit in astronomy quite yet. I, I would say the application in astronomy uh, is just starting to take off. Uh, the good thing is we have uh, very nicely built. Uh, algorithms from the computer vision community, from the uh, voice recognition uh, language processing community that we can tie into the kind of problems that astronomers are interested in. Uh, so I think the progress will uh, be very fast. However, uh, I would describe the, uh, the degree of maturity to be still in early stages. Okay. From my previous conversations with folks applying machine learning to astronomy, one of the challenges that 
of course, isn't unique to astronomy, but is accentuated in astronomy, I believe, is the, you know, the, the issue of the, the data, the cleanliness of the data. Um, can you talk a little bit about the data sources that you're working with and, you know, what they look like, how you have to deal with them, and the, the challenges that they create for you? Absolutely. So uh, because um, I think because we the algorithm side is so developed, well developed from the computer vision uh, uh, folks, I think uh, for us, uh, really uh, forming formalizing the problem and putting the data in the form is, is I think, the main effort in applying machine learning. And uh, so for us, um, uh, in the radio frequency study, uh, the data are collected as uh, complex raw voltages. So these are time series, uh, very high data rate time series uh, that we collect from, from the telescopes. Uh, the raw data rate uh, would be about half petabyte per day. Um, and we take these complex time series and we, uh, we essentially take Fourier transforms on these time series to form uh, spectrograms. So spectrograms are intensity as a function of frequency and time uh, they are essentially two-dimensional data, uh, sort of like images, where we do a lot of our, a lot of our analysis. So these two types of data products, uh, the time series and the the the, the waterfall plot, uh, the spectrograms, are the two main types of data that we work with. The spectrogram is that a native output of the telescope, or is that a product that you have to create through processing? So it's a product that you create for processing. It's, it, you can think of it sort of a feature extraction. Uh, so it's a Fourier transform uh, to, to represent time series essentially by the type of periodicities, the type of frequencies uh, uh, that's, that's present in the data. Uh, it's, it's a kind of uh, feature extraction, but it's a, very, uh, it's a very efficient one because of the way the, 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 the Fourier nature of, uh, of wave weight physics, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this this half a petabyte of data per day that's coming off of these telescopes that you're using. Do you have to work with all of that? Are you able to, are, are the, the telescopes themselves, like the organizations that run those telescopes producing products that are, you know, already processed and lower volume? Or do you just right. kind of work with raw data? Right. So uh, the, the spectrograms I, I mentioned, that's already uh, 100 times uh, smaller in terms of data volume than the okay. raw data. We, we do this simply by averaging uh, once the spectrograms are formed. Uh, so that makes the data storage problem a little more manageable. Um, so uh, and by, by doing so, you do destroy some information. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the spectrograms that we work with, we design them uh, from the get-go for a particular type of uh, observation uh, in that we try to isolate the signals uh, that are coming from the sky uh, aside from the signal that are coming from the side lobes. There's these signals, terrestrial signals from cell phones, satellites, from airplanes, uh, we try to isolate these interference away from uh, from signal that's actually coming from uh, space. Um, so we do this by a spatial filtering technique, uh, where uh, we, to simply put, we look at multiple patches of sky at the same time, 
And uh, if a signal shows up in all patches of sky, then we conclude that this signal is actually not localized uh, in the sky. So, so the, the spectrograms are, are, are designed uh, to look for these particular types of signals, and we have a set of match filters uh, that operates on these spectrograms to look for them. Um, however, uh, the nature of the problem is, is not so well defined because uh, we don't exactly know for sure that the type of signals that, um, that the advanced civilization could be sending matches the, the match filter that we're deploying. Uh, so we do store all of these spectrograms for later inspection with more advanced techniques such as uh, deep learning, uh, even unsupervised learning, to uh, to look through them uh, more exhaustively. Mm -hmm. The um, you mentioned that one of the big challenges, besides from kind of just the data processing piece, is problem formulation. Uh, and, and you alluded to that again, and that you you know this is something that will change as we get more sophisticated. Uh, how do you approach that part of the problem, though, in your research? Right, right. So uh, the fact that the data comes very unstructured, so these are essentially just uh, images and images and images uh, where you don't exactly know what to look for in the image. Uh, it, it, it requires... Uh, essentially different uh, problems being formulated uh, depending on what, what the goal is. So one particular project that we recently did a uh, press release on was uh, detection of a signal known as a fast radio burst. So these are a particular type of signals that astronomers have detected since 2007. Uh, so these, what they look like is uh, in the spectrogram that we just mentioned, these are roughly a parabola. So these are quadratic form uh, signals. Um, so um, to look for these type of signals, uh, we, we know what type of signal we're looking for. So to use machine learning, we can simulate uh, the type of signal. Um, and, um, and the reason we, we want to do this is one, one we, we know what to simulate and also because the signals uh, are themselves very rare. So to date, there are only about uh, 50 different fast radio bursts uh, ever detected. And uh, from one of these sources, there have been about 200 to 300 detections. So this is not a lot of uh, samples to go off from, uh, from a deep learning perspective. Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, you know, a simulation will be needed to, to greatly expand the positive examples. Uh, on the other hand, we we do collect, uh, uh, you know, the, in terms of spectrograms, we collect about a petabyte per year uh, of spectrograms, and uh, there are many many examples. There are there are terabytes and terabytes of interference, uh, the signals that we don't want to pick up in this data. And uh, by using the real background, the real interference background, and simulating on top of uh, the uh, simulating fixed signals on top of the interference background, uh, we train the train these networks to reject uh, the signals that are actually interference and uninteresting. So that's that's one particular example how to look for signals that are rare, but we know what to look for. Uh, sometimes we 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 detect certain signals, um, and we don't exactly know if this signal is interesting. Uh, you know that requires a slightly different uh, problem formulation, and that way we we have to first design a match filter, or we can you know design a uh, a machine learning algorithm to pick out these signals. 
Then we do anomaly detection. So we do a future prediction type of anomaly detection where based on the past observation, we try to predict the future observation, and then we compare uh, against the real observation to see if there's any significant discrepancies. And uh, if there is, then anomaly is triggered, and uh, we, we, we will look at the signal more closely. Um, there are also problems where uh, we have, uh, uh, we, we collected uh, a great deal of signals, and we don't know exactly how to characterize them. Uh, whether they can be classified or they, some of them maybe we can classify. And that could be treated uh, as more of a, a semi-supervised uh, uh, clustering uh, type of problem uh, where we try to characterize uh, the, uh, the signals and try to put them into different classes. In the case of the fast radio bursts work, is the idea that you've, you're able to, tr to train a detector for these radio bursts, uh, will you then take that detector that you've trained and run it against the you know petabytes and petabytes of historical data to identify instances where it occurred before you started paying attention to it, or is it more just you know from now on we're going to start looking at these things by running this detector against them? Uh, this particular announcement was about uh, so uh, a particular observation that we performed about a year ago. So for that observation, we collected about eight terabytes uh, of spectrogram data that's now all open to public from our website. Uh, so in this observation, we previously had a match filtering technique that detected 21 uh, uh, signals. Uh, and by training this network, we, we reanalyzed the same data and detected 72 more. Uh, so, mm. so this, all of these detections were from the same source. So they have certain characteristics. They're all similar to each other, which made the design of the, uh, both in terms of the problem formulation, you know, what kind of resolution should I feed in the spectrogram in, uh, you know, what, how many, how many layers we should have to make, uh, the, the entire design a little simpler. Uh, we will also like to do both of those things that you suggested. One is to, search uh, blindly uh, in all the archival data for similar signals. And another is to, uh, uh, to use this in the real-time scenario for, for future surveys. Uh, both of those will be a little more challenging. Uh, for example, one, for the, one difficulty is the problem of scale. When you, don't know, uh, when you don't know essentially the curvature of this parabola, uh, the signal could be uh, even a hundred times, uh, it lasts a hundred times longer than the signals we detected in this case, or, or be much narrower, uh, so on and so forth. And that requires sort of a multi-scale uh, kind of a, a input in order to have the same uh, sensitivity across all of the parameter spaces. So that, that we haven't done yet. So you formulate your problem into one of these broad categories of, you know, identifying the patterns or doing anomaly detection. Uh, and then you, you know, have the, t the two different types of data, the uh, time series data and the spectrogram data. Are there other things that you're doing? You know, what else are you doing on the, the data processing side to before you are putting data into kind of, it sounds like you're using traditional more or less CNNs and, and uh, 
those types of neural networks. Is that right? Right, right, right. So uh, uh, some of these re require, uh, are you, uh, so both in terms of the pre-processing, in terms of the feature extraction, and in terms of the deep learning, depending on the problem, there, there are different uses. Uh, so for, for this, for the fast radio burst work, we used a, a, a typical CNN. It was a residual network. Uh, for anomaly detection, because there's a temporal component to it, we use a convolutional LSTM. Uh, and uh, it's also trained in out of a serial way, like again, because uh, uh, because the loss function when so these spectrograms they are they are image they are two dimensional image data, but they are very very noisy. So that makes a direct comparison in terms of the uh, pixel wise uh, L1 or L2 loss that make, makes that not very uh, useful because noise you can no, you cannot predict noise right. So, uh, so we use sort of adversarial loss uh, um, to to train these type of networks for the clustering type. Uh, depending on, we want to be a robust, for example, to uh, to a variety of things to to how um, how the signal was filtered uh, on the analog side and to how we how we process them and what was the fractional bandwidth uh, uh, and. To, to, to be robust to a wide, wide range of parameter there, we, uh, we do some uh, uh, feature space techniques. Uh, we use some additional laws to, to regulate what the feature space looks like. We also try to uh, use uh, some of the adversarial techniques uh, called domain transfers. These are the same techniques that people uh, use to uh, do. So if the training set, say, was... was uh, uh, rolled images uh, taken during the day, how would you be able to do inference uh, for, for when you, how would you be able to inference when your camera is, is recording at night, right? So right. To, to be able to cross this domain, uh, we, we try some of the techniques that people developed in computer vision as well to, to do this, yeah. Okay, uh, you, you mentioned uh, GANs. Can you elaborate on what you're doing with, with GANs? Uh, so yeah, so uh, the particular work I mentioned um, has an adversarial component to it. It's sort of a uh, so so again, uh, the original again is meant to generate new data that conforms to the distribution uh, of the data set. Uh, it's not quite exactly uh, what we're doing. What we're doing this is a future prediction type of uh, uh, type of network. So what we're trying to do is to uh, given the past observation, predict what the future observation would look like. Uh, so you would still want to compare this prediction with the actual observation. So in a way, this is uh, this is a self-supervised type of technique. Mm -hmm. uh, we we use an adversarial loss in that the generator that we have that generates this future prediction, uh, we 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 also introduce a discriminator that looks at uh, uh, the the real observation. And the predicted observation, and try to tell which one is which. And by uh, having the generator uh, trying to fool this discriminator, uh, we uh, essentially generate more realistic-looking uh, uh, future predictions. And is this is this uh, GAN operating like in the frequency domain? Is it trying to predict spectrogram samples or something else? Right, right. So, so this was a convolutional LSTM that was uh, that's making the prediction. 
So uh, that's that's just the generator I is. The the gain component of this is just an additional term in the loss function. So the discriminator is a, is a CNN that looks at uh, the spectrogram that's predicted. You talked about uh, domain transfer, domain adaptation. How are you approaching that in, in this use case? Uh, so, I mean, the main idea of domain transfer is that when your training data uh, has certain characteristics and your uh, your, your test set data is from a different distribution and you want to be able to correctly do inference on this new uh, slightly differently distributed uh, data set. Uh, I think uh, this problem we face a lot in the radio frequency domain because uh, uh, the signals could potentially look very different uh, if, you, uh, if a different sensor was used, if uh, different bandwidth was used, uh, Essentially, the same signal can look completely different uh, uh, in the time domain, which which may be the the original uh, the, the the data that was that was fed in that was fed into the the network. So uh, we use these techniques to uh, to essentially do the same thing as uh, as uh, in computer vision to be able to uh, do inference more effectively uh, in a domain that the training data was not collected on. And is this primarily happening at the kind of as feature pre-processing or, you know, you know, uh, adding, subtracting gain from your signal or uh, applying filters or things like that? Or is this uh, stuff that's done in the training process? Uh, so this is this is done uh, in the in the training process when we uh, uh, so uh, also we, we for example, we use a lot of. Uh, uh, we use a lot of simulated data because it's hard to collect uh, uh, ground truth labels for, for real data. And uh, to when, when we train with this loss function that uh, that has knowledge of what the uh, what the, the the real data the essentially the target class looks like, but we don't know the labels. Uh, you can add this additional loss to the to the training process so that. Uh, uh, the learned model is is more aware of of the target domain. I guess I'm trying to get a sense for how many features these models tend to have. Ah, uh, are they you know hu- high, very high dimension or not necessarily? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, so, uh, the um, in some of my experiments uh, uh, in these type of classification and semi supervised clustering algorithms, we find that. Uh, this type of domain adaptation we typically use on the on, on the last layer. Essentially, uh, we uh, we find that around uh, 128 features was probably uh, uh, was the most efficient in terms of uh, using this technique. Okay. Uh, um, but that doesn't mean that uh, I, uh, this is a general statement about uh, all of these applications. It, it could simply be uh, the type of signals that I was. Uh, deploying this technique to classify, uh, you know, uh, roughly had that many dimensions. So um, I think there's it's still a, a, a still uh, an open question to uh, to to the, the degree of variability uh, in the number of features. In the the fast radio burst paper, there was some mention of a new periodicity search technique based on rally tests. Is that uh, is that related to machine learning, or is that more kind of domain specific? Uh, 
I would say that's that's more of a data mining technique that's not really machine learning. Uh, however, it is a technique that's new to the astronomy uh, community. So this is so we we detected all these signals, and we would try to see. Uh, one of the main questions we want to see is: Is there any regularity? Do you see periodically appearing signals? And uh, uh, because these signals come from very very far away, so the source. Uh, I should say for this particular signal has been localized in a dwarf galaxy that's three billion light years away. Um, so, and the signal when they when they come to us, many of them are very very weak. So we don't exactly know how many of the signals that was emitted was actually detected, uh, and that makes searching for periodicity in in the signal uh, relatively difficult. Uh, so we we use this technique based on the Rayleigh's test. Uh, to see if we can uh, detect any periodicities, and if not, if we can put a significance level uh, in terms of uh, in, they're not existing a periodicity. And uh, uh, in the end, we went with a later one. Uh, it does not look like any of the periodicities that in the range that physically uh, was sensible uh, was a statistically good match uh, for the data that we collected. To what degree is the periodicity represented in the spectrograph? Like, I would have imagined that the frequency component, uh, you know, the stronger frequency components would represent periodicity that is kind of readily apparent from the spectrograph. What does this technique do for you kind of beyond what is available via your Fourier transform types of techniques? Right, right, right. So uh, that's that's a very valid question. Uh, so in the uh, uh, in the spectrogram domain, uh, if you see a very regular period, then uh, uh, it, it will show up uh, very clearly. Um, so in in our case, these are very rare signals. So in these uh, uh, six hours of observation, around eight petabytes of data, uh, we have about a hundred detections. So these are very rare and very weak signals. So similar techniques that have been uh, applied to uh, finding pulsars, which are radio bursts, uh, uh, there are some differences. Well, the pulsars are, are uh, their source are situated within our galaxy, and uh, uh, most of them you can see clearly a regular period. Uh, and, and some of these techniques in spectrogram that works on spectrograms could work there. But for us, uh, because of the amount of noise that's present, uh, it's it just was not nearly powerful enough uh, to put a constraint. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I imagine that there's um, I don't have the the words for it, but I imagine that there's some notion of a, kind of a complex periodicity that's not um, you know just a regular time domain frequency, but maybe has other components that might be harder to detect, but still interesting. Is, is that something that you're able to? detect in this data right right uh, so I mean essentially if you have uh, if you have many parameters you can always fit the data right so yeah can... yeah <laughs> so it's uh, uh, we that is one issue and um, uh, the way we so, so uh, I should just mention some factor that could potentially uh, cause this type of complex periodicity one is uh, uh, you know the emission could not have been periodic but maybe it was uh, you know, the emission itself was was sort of was pseudo periodic. There was a window in which through which uh, the, uh, the the signal was emitted, and during the 
during the propagation process, uh, there could have been processes that made some of these that delayed some of these signals more than the others. So when they, by the time they arrive, they appear to essentially you've smeared out any any periodicity that was in in at the time of emission. Uh, so we don't exactly know. I mean, uh, there are some physical, there are some models that are based on astrophysics uh, to model these more complex type of periodicities. Uh, there hasn't been enough uh, uh, evidence to support any of them. And uh, uh, even though we have the most amount of detections from a single observation, it still would not be able to constrain uh, these models. So what, what we did is to uh, essentially... Uh, put all the complexities in the same parameter. And in our case, it's the uncertainty. It's the uncertainty in the arrival times uh, that we picked up. And, uh, you know, all of these different models, they would uh, map onto this uncertainty in a way. And we constrained, uh, we, we derived our final constraint as a function of this uh, uncertainty. Mm. And that way, uh, this measurement could contribute to to, to putting limits on these individual complex periodicity models. So you see kind of in parallel to the application of machine learning and deep learning to astronomy, uh, the application happening in domains like computer vision uh, that's moving very quickly. Are there technique and, and you're, you're, Sounds like you're staying very well current to some of those techniques by applying GANs and domain uh, transfer and things like that. Are there things that you're excited about happening outside of uh, particular things that you're excited about happening uh, outside of astronomy that you think will have big impact uh, on this field? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I should say the the radio frequency uh, uh AI applied to radio frequency data is not only uh, something that's done in astronomy. Uh, in recent years, there's, there's also a lot of interest uh, in the defense sector as well as uh, in telecommunications. Uh, and there are uh, uh, there are a few companies that I know, uh, mostly uh, in Washington D.C. area, that that specialize uh, in this type of signal recognition. And for them. Uh, they want to be able to classify all the signals uh, that they detect and see if there are any anomalies. Uh, for 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 us in 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 radio SETI, uh, we will also like to do that. They may not be the signals that we are looking for, but uh, we we typically we would describe this as a, as a needle in a haystack uh, kind of a problem, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, by classifying. Uh, all of the signals that are terrestrial signal communication signals, we're able to we will be able to understand the hay uh, in the problem very well, and uh, uh, this would help us narrow down our search greatly in terms of uh, understanding uh, you know, potentially interesting signals uh, in our data. And are there things? Are there techniques that are emerging or evolving in? Uh, the broader or out of the broader deep learning community that you see having a big impact in this area? Uh, outside of deep learning? No, inside of, you know, within deep learning, but outside of the astronomy uh, in particular. Uh, so, so for example, the, these applications I, I mentioned are, are works that, in, that are in uh, uh, their engineering, uh, more from an engineering signal processing point of view. So they are a bit outside of astronomy uh, themselves. Uh, 
uh, in effect, we we uh, we try to pay close attention to uh, uh, to some of the recent progresses. Uh, um, it's uh, usually I think. Uh, uh, we're late enough to the game that uh, there are still enough cherries to pick from well-established ideas. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, you know, it could be, it's both a good thing and a bad thing. A good thing is that, uh, uh, you know, we, we do have a lot of established techniques that we can apply effectively uh, by designing the problem appropriately. Uh, the difficult part is that, uh, you know, the data was not collected with machine learning in mind. So, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, the, first of all, there's not many labels, and, and things have vastly different scales compared to one another. I think the, the putting the data in a form that's uh, uh, that's suitable for for these, you know, by this point, well-established ideas is uh, uh, it's still a very fruitful effort. I think. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about what you're up to. It's very cool stuff. Great, yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.